I'm glad that you are here with me at the end of all things. Welcome to There and Back Again. I'm Alistair Stevens, and in this, our 68th session of our exploration of Middle Earth, we are actually finally pinky swear, no kidding, going to cast that ring into the crack of doom. It has been a long time coming, but this week's reading, the end of chapter three and all of chapter four, theoretically, of book six of The Lord of the Rings. In this week's reading, we will see the ultimate realization of Professor Tolkien's narrative arc of the immediate plot of the War of the Ring and the inevitable conclusion to which we have been led. Previously, Frodo and Sam have, of course, uh, have of course crossed Mordor, and we are currently climbing the flank of Mount Doom when they are attacked by a mysterious and familiar figure. And we're going to begin here with the last slide of the previous session, just to build our momentum before we get to the crack of Doom itself. Frodo looked at him as if one now far away. Yes, I must go on, he said. Farewell, Sam. This is the end at last. On Mount Doom, Doom shall fall. Farewell. He turned and went on, walking slowly but erect up the climbing path. No, said Sam, at least I can deal with you. He leapt forward with drawn blade, ready for battle. But Gollum did not spring. He fell flat upon the ground and whimpered. Don't kill us, he wept. Don't hurt us with nasty, cruel steel. Let us live, yes, live just a little longer. Lost, lost, we're lost. And when precious goes, we'll die, yes, die into the dust. He clawed up the ashes of the path with his long, fleshless fingers. Dust, he hissed. Sam's hand wavered. His mind was hot with wrath and the memory of evil. It would be just to slay this treacherous, murderous creature, just and many times deserved but also it seemed like the only safe thing to do. But deep in his heart, there was something that restrained him. He could not strike this thing lying in the dust, forlorn, ruinous, utterly wretched. He himself, though only for a little while, had borne the ring, and now dimly he guessed the agony of Gollum's shriveled mind and body, enslaved to that ring, unable to find peace or relief ever in life again. But Sam had no words to express what he felt. Oh, curse you, you stinking thing, he said. Go away, be off. I don't trust you, not as far as I could kick you, but be off, or I shall hurt you, yes, with nasty, cruel steel. Gollum got up on all fours and backed away for several paces. Then he turned, and as Sam aimed a kick at him, he fled away down the path. Sam gave no more heed to him. He suddenly remembered his master. He looked up the path and could not see him. As fast as he could, he trudged up the road if he had looked back. He might have seen not far below Gollum turn again, and then with a wild light of madness glaring in his eyes come, swiftly but warily, creeping on behind a slinking shadow among the stones. This moment of hope, this moment of redemption, this moment of pity and the possibility of a better tomorrow, Sam isn't perhaps affording Gollum the same generosity of spirit that Frodo has. He isn't recognizing within Gollum that same corruption which has encroached page by page, mile by mile upon Frodo's spirit, upon Frodo's mind, Frodo's psyche, Frodo's very being, in fact. Sam isn't in quite the same place, but he has now borne the ring, and he can now imagine that incalculable weight. That incalculable weight spread not over moments or days, not just over weeks or months, but over years and decades and centuries. Five hundred years Gollum lived beneath the Misty Mountains with the ring. And though Sam doesn't know that, of course, he can at least speculate that it was an immeasurable span of time. Much is made of Sam's moment of pity. And as we discussed in last week's reading, it's not quite a moment of pity, right? A moment of pity, as we discussed last time, requires you to extend kindness and empathy without sharing common experience. What Sam is exhibiting here is less pity. Pity it was that stayed his hand, as Gandalf says all the way back in, in Bag End. Not a moment of pity as much as it is a moment of sympathy. But that doesn't make it less 
valuable. It doesn't make it less important. It doesn't make it less virtuous. What it does make it is more direct. It is more intimate. This is a moment of intimacy between Sam and Gollum, though Sam, of course, in his simple way, incapable of expressing that, incapable of actually articulating what it is that he is now feeling. But Sam had no words to express what he felt. Oh, curse you, you stinking thing. Go, go away. Be off. I don't trust you not as far as I could kick you, but be off. I am modifying my desire to kill you here. This just long-deserved death that awaits you, Gollum. I will resist the urge to kill you. And not just, of course, Sam as an embodiment of justice here, but also it seemed the only safe thing to do. Safe in what sense? He can't genuinely be afraid of Gollum, right? He's not afraid. Of, there's no sense here that, that Sam, even outside of his guise as Samwise, the strong hero of the age, right? There's no sense that Sam is actually physically threatened by Gollum. And yet it would be the only safe thing to do to kill him. Sam understands in that moment, even before the, the narrative voice articulates Sam's perspective on the burden that Gollum carries and the... The, the connection, the bond between Gollum and the ring, the Go between Gollum and the precious. Even before he's consciously articulating that, Sam does understand that Gollum will not stop. And yet, at the end, having sent Gollum away, Sam turns his back and does not think of him again, right? Sam made a kick at him, he fled away down the path. Sam gave no more heed to him. He suddenly remembered his master. He looked up the path and could not see him as fast as he could. He trudged up the road. If he had looked back, which he didn't, if he had looked back, he could have seen the least surprising turn of events in literary history. You guys, he could have seen Gollum pursuing him. He understands that Gollum is going to stay with him, but he keeps Gollum alive. I'm going into such depth here, and we're revisiting this point from the last session, in order to carefully articulate and explore what happens to Sam in this moment. Sam doesn't just have a moment of sympathy. He doesn't just have a moment of pity. He doesn't just decide that he is going to spare Gollum's life for another day. He keeps Gollum alive in the here and now, even as, on some level, he understands that Gollum is going to keep pursuing Frodo. We see that right at the beginning of the passage, in fact, when Frodo, realizing that this delay is going to potentially cost him his chance to complete their quest and cast the ring into the Crack of Doom, he just takes off. He says, okay, you're right, Sam, you're right. You stay here and deal with Gollum. I'm going to I'm gonna go do that thing that we've been doing now for the last 11 months. I'm going to go and finish this up. I'm just take care of business. You stay here with Gollum. You sort this out. I'm going to be busy with, with a ring. We might speculate about why Frodo is so eager to leave Sam's company in that moment too, whether Frodo himself might be somewhat under the influence of the ring. I've looked for it, and I don't find any evidence of that in the attributed dialogue that we get from Frodo. Yes, I must go on. Farewell, Sam. This is the end at last. On Mount Doom, doom shall fall. Farewell. There isn't a sense, or at least there isn't a clear communicable sense there that Frodo is acting under the influence of the ring, or that Frodo is even caught in the grip of one of those those ring-induced hallucinations, right? <laughs> that he's somehow saying, ah, but Frodo the great and Frodo the wise and Frodo the strong hero of the age, that, that maybe if I could just get away from that, that damnable Samwise Gamgee, I could slip on the ring and I could claim it and all would be well. It doesn't seem to be the case, or, or at least there is no evidence that that is the case right now, but we might freely speculate given what happens in just a moment's time. So Sam manages to save Gollum, manages to preserve Gollum for the great fate which awaits him. Jackie here saying, Sam has a moment of revelation, not pity or empathy or sympathy. He understands Gollum's intentions. That's 
interesting. Um, yeah, I, well, I would I would argue that we're we're seeing a kind of sympathy grounded in an epiphany. Certainly, that that moment of connection and moment of realization does seem epiphanic. Does seem revelatory, right? He is understanding a new truth in that moment, and it is fascinating that we don't slip directly into Sam's POV. That the narrative voice holds us just a little removed because I think. We don't want to study too closely what Sam is thinking or feeling in this moment. We don't want to slip into Sam's interiority because then there is the question, having understood that Gollum will simply never stop and will never give up and having been aware of Gollum for the last week as they have been crossing Mordor and having seen the lengths to which Gollum will go in order to pursue the precious, why would Sam believe that that aiming a kick at him and driving him off down the path would be enough? Well, Sam doesn't believe that. It doesn't seem to be a conscious decision. It is simply a stalling tactic that gets us where we need to go. And this is the first point in this week's reading at which we are going to acknowledge that long-standing and very complicated discussion that awaits us about free will and predestination. What what is Sam doing in this moment? Is Sam acting as Sam acts, as Sam would act, as Sam should act? Or is Sam simply playing his part in the the unrolling of history, that, that song that was sung at the beginning of creation by, by the Valar, by the, the Ainur? Is he... Is he conscious and and active in this moment, or is he simply fulfilling his role? Well, we'll talk more about that as we uh, as we push forward. Varig of Khand observing that the hobbits and Gollum must not have bathed since Ithilien. Um, I'm not so sure about Gollum. I'm not sure that Gollum has bathed since the last time he inadvertently found himself underwater, to be perfectly honest. But yes, the, the, the hobbits definitely not. Um, when was the last time that the hobbits had their ease? I mean, Sam at Parth Gallon? Probably, right? Like, that that was the last time they were really comfortable. The last time they were really comfortable was in Lothlorien, which was months ago. Yeah, this is the end of a very, very long journey, which is actually very important as we, as we look ahead to the end of Frodo's journey. Um... But you know what? We'll talk about that when we get there. We'll talk about that when we get to to, to Frodo's final moment there. Uh, Let's move on to our next slide and take a look at the crack of doom itself. The path climbed on. Soon it bent again, and with the last eastward course passed in a cutting along the face of the cone and came to the dark door in the mountainside, the door of the Samothnar. Far away now, rising toward the south, the sun, piercing the smokes and haze, burned ominous, a dull, bleared disk of red. But all Mordor lay about the mountain like a dead land, silent, shadow-folded, waiting for some dreadful stroke. Sam came to the gaping mouth and peered in. It was dark and hot, and a deep rumbling shook the air. Frodo! Master! he called. There was no answer. For a moment he stood, his heart beating with wild fears, and then he plunged in. A shadow followed him. At first he could see nothing. In his great need he drew out once more the file of Galadriel, but it was pale and cold in his trembling hand and threw no light into that stifling dark. He was come to the heart of the realm of Sauron and the forges of his ancient might, greatest in Middle-earth. All other powers were here subdued. Fearfully he took a few uncertain steps in the dark, and then all at once there came a flash of red that leapt upward and smote the high black roof. And Sam saw that he was in a long cave or tunnel that bored into the mountain's smoking cone. But only a short way ahead, its floor and the walls on either side were cloven by a great fissure, out of which the red glare came, now leaping up, now dying down into darkness, and all the while far below there was a rumour and a trouble as of great engines throbbing and labouring. The light sprang up again, and there on the brink of the chasm at the very crack of doom stood Frodo, black against the glare, tense, erect, but still as if he had been turned to stone. Master! cried Sam. Then Frodo stirred 
and spoke with a clear voice, indeed with a voice clearer and more powerful than Sam had ever heard him use, and it rose above the throb and turmoil of Mount Doom, ringing in the roof and walls. I have come, he said, but I do not choose now to do what I came to do. I will not do this deed. The ring is mine! And suddenly, as he set it on his finger, he vanished from Sam's sight. Sam gasped, but he had no chance to cry out, for at that moment many things happened. All of which will catch up with in just a moment. Uh, Seastar calling out a rumor and a trouble. Interesting phrase. Isn't that gorgeous? We are. I mean, we're awfully close to the, the very heights of Tolkien's, uh, Tolkien's rhetorical power here. It's, it's pretty stunning. It's pretty breathtaking. Um, Mel is joining us this evening too. Excellent. Welcome, Mel. Glad to have you here. Um, gosh, there's, there's so much. So, First of all, let's talk about the file of Galadriel. Let's talk about the fact that even here in his moment of direst need, Sam cannot summon a light from the file of Galadriel. In this moment, at the heart of the realm of Sauron and the forges of his ancient might, greatest in Middle-earth, all other powers were here subdued. Even the light of Galadriel cannot pierce this gloom. And, okay, we might talk about how visually impressive the Peter Jackson movies are. We might talk about how stunning the Crack of Doom sequence is. But this is so much better for me. This is the image that I have in my head of, of Samoth Naur here. The, the, the idea of this, this throbbing red light that suddenly leaps up to, to scorch the ceiling and then vanishes entirely, leaving us in darkness. This is so much more oppressive and so, more, so much more true of my sense of Sauron, I suppose. This is it. This is, this is the end. And in this moment... Frodo loses. Frodo fails. And we have to be completely clear in this moment that Frodo has, in fact, failed. It is, um, it is easy, I think, to look at this and be frustrated, right? It is easy to look at Frodo's quest and say, all of this, all of this, and he falls, all of this, and he falters. But this is not a test that is being applied to Frodo now. This is a test that has been applied to Frodo with every step of his journey. Ever since he took possession of the ring, never mind leaving the Shire, right? Never mind being wounded at Weathertop, never mind crossing through Moria, never mind leaving Lothlorien, never mind being sundered from the Fellowship at Parthgallon, never mind running into Gollum and then into Faramir and being taken by the orcs, being stung by Sheila, right? Everything that he has gone through has happened within this, this framework of testing. Every step Frodo has been tested and he has passed Every single time he has passed and passed and passed, and it is only now at the last test, the last of a million, million tests, that Frodo's strength is exhausted. Here at the very heart of Sauron's power, Frodo has resisted. Well, okay. When does Frodo succumb? He has succumbed by the time we get to him. That at least is, is my reading. When he turns to Sam and his voice is already more calm, is already more powerful than any Sam has heard. I have come, but I do not choose now to do what I came to do. I will not do this deed. The ring is mine. He's already talking as someone who has claimed the power of the ring. That is why he is so much more powerful now, why he is so much stronger now in this moment. It is because the ring has been claimed. Frodo has made that choice that Sam recognized as he crossed into Mordor, right? As Sam is, is holding the ring and he realizes now, oh, wait, I can't just, uh, I can't just wear the ring casually anymore. I can't wear the ring to, to dodge the orcs anymore. Now I have a stark choice. I can either forsake it entirely 
or I can claim it. And that is when we get the, the Samwise, the strong hero of the age, uh, ring temptation, right? Frodo has faced that same temptation. He hasn't used the ring to hide from the orcs or to hide from Gollum, come to that, in his time in Mordor. But he has now made the other choice. He has now claimed the ring in its entirety. And it is vital to recognize here, too, not just that Frodo has failed, but that Frodo... Well, we can talk a little about the semantics of this, I suppose, but that Frodo has chosen to fail. I, I have come, he said, but I do not choose now to do what I came to do. I do not choose to destroy the ring, right? That is not to say that I choose not to destroy the ring or that I choose to claim the ring. I do not choose to destroy the ring, is what he is saying in that moment. I will not do this deed. This is the, the, the follow-up thought, a stronger declaration, right? I am not choosing to destroy the ring, but hey, potentially the ring might be destroyed. No, let's go one step further. I will not do, the, uh, do this deed. Then let's go one step further. The ring is mine. And suddenly, as he set it on his finger, he vanished from Sam's sight. Now, yes, that is the moment where he vanishes, but the strength and the power in Frodo's voice does to me indicate that he has already at least made internally the decision to claim the ring. He is empowered by something in that moment. It is stunning. It is difficult sometimes. I remember my first reading, I was disappointed in Frodo. It actually, I remember being so rocked by this that the next time that I read The Lord of the Rings, I actually didn't like Frodo very much. I kind of took against Frodo because I knew that ultimately he would fail. And it took a lot for me, particularly as you're reading The Return of the King, when Frodo is so burdened and so beleaguered by all of this it is difficult to remain emotionally connected to Frodo. And this is one of the reasons, I think, that we love Sam so much. Not just that Sam is a fantastic character in and of himself, though he certainly is, but that Sam also keeps us emotionally connected to Frodo. Remember back, you guys. Remember back to Frodo in the Shire. Remember back to Frodo with Tom Bombadil. Remember back to Frodo in Rivendell or Frodo in Lothlorien. Remember Frodo when he is, you know, smart and funny and kind and decent? Remember all of those qualities? There's so much personality to Frodo in the first instance that what we are left with here can feel like a failure. It can feel as though Tolkien has rejected the basic questing premise of his story. Is the Lord of the Rings, a Campbellian hero's journey monomythic story? Well, no. No, it is not. And here's why. Frodo fails. A classic hero, a conventional hero, the hero of any one of a thousand novels which were written in the wake of The Lord of the Rings would have succeeded must inevitably succeed. That is one of the ways in which we can define a hero. Oh, he's the guy that wins at the end. Frodo does not win. Tolkien is making a much more purposeful and much, much more important point here. Because Frodo's failure takes the pressure off of Frodo. It, it removes responsibility for the fate of the world from Frodo. Frodo is not responsible for destroying the ring. Frodo is not responsible for saving the world. He cannot be uh, a hobbit. Any hobbit, even our loved Samwise Gamgee, could not stand in that spot and do that thing. Not here in the heart of Sauron's power. Instead, Frodo fails and opens up that crack. He opens up the possibility of light and of grace and, of course, of eucatastrophe. Let's move on to our next slide. Something struck Sam violently in the back. His legs were knocked from under him, and he was flung aside, striking his head against the stony floor as the dark shape sprang over him. He lay still, and for a moment all went black. And far away, 
As Frodo put on the ring and claimed it for his own, even in Samath Naur, the very heart of his realm, the power in Barad-dûr was shaken, and the tower trembled from its foundations to its proud and bitter crown. The Dark Lord was suddenly aware of him, and his eye, piercing all shadows, looked across the plain to the door that he had made, and the magnitude of his own folly was revealed to him in a blinding flash, and all the devices of his enemies were at last laid bare. Then, Then his wrath blazed in consuming flame, but his fear rose like a vast black smoke to choke him, for he knew his deadly peril and the thread upon which his doom now hung. From all his policies and webs of fear and treachery, from all his stratagems and wars his mind shook free, and throughout his realm a tremor ran, his slaves quailed and his armies halted, and his captains suddenly steerless, bereft of will, wavered and despaired, for they were forgotten. The whole mind and purpose of the power that wielded them was now bent with overwhelming force upon the mountain. At his summons, wheeling with a rending cry in a last desperate race, there flew faster than the winds the Nazgul, the ringwraiths, and with the storm of wings they hurtled southwards toward Mount Doom. We discussed in the last reading here on There and Back Again the moment of victory, the moment at which the last debate is entirely justified, and the plan of Gandalf and Aragorn and Eomer and, and Prince Emerhill, their plan to march against Moranon in order to distract Sauron from the hobbits, was proved right, was proved wise. That was the moment of victory. And this is, I suppose, the follow-up moment, right? Now, having been blinded to the crossing of Mordor by Frodo and Sam, to the possession of the ring by Frodo, Sauron is now aware of all that has happened. From all his policies and webs of fear and treachery, from all his stratagems and wars, his mind shook free, and throughout his realm a tremor ran. His slaves quailed, his armies halted, and his captains, his captains suddenly steerless, bereft of will, wavered and despaired, for they were forgotten. All that is Sauron is now poured upon Mount Doom. The Nazgul are coming. They are racing like, like storm clouds above Mordor, coming to destroy this, uh, this interloper and to try, presumably, to reclaim the ring. Then, in his, uh, then his wrath blazed in consuming flame, but his fear rose like a, bla- a vast black smoke to choke him, for he knew his deadly peril and the threat upon which his doom now hung. He realizes his mistake. The magnitude of his own folly was revealed to him in a blinding flash. Ah, crap. I have been paying way too much attention to Aragorn, that kid with the Palantir. I have been paying way too much attention to the thought that he definitely has the One Ring. This is what is actually happening. Not that the One Ring will be destroyed. There is now no reason for him to believe that the One Ring will be destroyed. It is entirely possible, in fact, that the possibility that the One Ring will be destroyed never crosses Sauron's mind, not even in that last moment when he is finally destroyed. As far away as Frodo put on the ring and claimed it for his own, even in Samath Naur, the very heart of his realm, the power in Barad-dûr was shaken. As Frodo claims it and chooses to step up as, well, a rival to the Dark Lord in the first instance, and then ultimately, of course a new Dark Lord. That is the path of those who claim the ring. We know that for sure, even hobbits in this moment, particularly because Frodo, unlike the ring bearers before him, is now claiming the ring with the full knowledge of its power. No one has done that previously, right? Not even Sam claimed, well, Sam didn't claim the ring. uh, Sam bore the ring, but he didn't claim it in quite the same way. He was only ever holding it in trust, as it were, um, up until that moment when he finally rejects it, of course, which is one of the reasons I would argue that the ring has less of a hold over Samwise Gamgee than it has over the other ring bearers. But Bilbo didn't, Smeagol didn't, Deagle 
sure as hell didn't. Even Isildur, as he cleaves it from the hand of Sauron himself, doesn't know what the ring is, doesn't know what it can do, doesn't know what it represents, and certainly doesn't know the fate that that awaits the ring in the... Uh, in the the span of the history of, of Middle-earth. And Mel asking, when has Sauron even been afraid before? Never, never. Sauron has been defeated, but nothing can challenge Sauron's might like the destruction of the ring. That's the whole point. It doesn't matter. This is the fighting the long defeat. There are, or, okay, let me be a little more careful there because we're hopefully going to talk about this element in particular at the end of tonight's reading. But this is one of the constituent elements of the long defeat that Galadriel describes. We can drive out evil. We've done it before. We've done it at least twice over, in fact. That's why this is the third age. We've done it at least twice before, and every time it comes back. But this evil is not going to come back this time, and Sauron knows it. Sauron understands it. The magnitude of his folly is revealed. Chris saying the War of Wrath, I think, scared him. Um, I will have to go back and actually look at, at, um, at the accounts that we get. I don't know for sure that we get an actual description of, of, of fear, right? Even when he... No, I'm thinking of his stratagems, basically, from the middle of the Second Age, right? I'm thinking of um, basically everything from, from the forging of the rings onward. I see a, a tradition of Sauron, yes, suffering defeats, kind of, but also being aware of the of the grander plan, of being aware of, the, of his master plan. Um, yeah, I, I'll have to go back. Of course, we'll have the opportunity to talk about that when we start discussing the Silmarillion in just a few months' time. Jackie quoting, The tower trembled from its foundation to its uh, round and bitter crown. Um, uh, to its proud and bitter crown. Yes, excellent. Good. Good. Okay. Let's see. Yeah, Jackie thinking autocorrect for that. Uh, yeah, I know. Uh, and Chris looking forward to the Silmarillion discussion. Hey, me too. A lot, a lot to look forward to as we as we move through the Silmarillion, and of course, a lot to look forward to as we move through the rest of the Return of the King and through the uh, the appendices to the Lord of the Rings too. A ton of material in there. I've just been rereading all of that stuff, which is just great. So the eye distracted, we move into the final uh, the final moment. Sam got up. He was dazed, and blood streaming from his head dripped in his eyes. He groped forward, and then he saw a strange and terrible thing. Gollum on the edge of the abyss was fighting like a mad thing with an unseen foe. To and fro he swayed, now so near the brink that he almost tumbled in, now dragging back, falling to the ground, rising and falling again, and all the while he hissed but spoke no words. The fires below awoke in anger. The red light blazed, and all the cavern was filled with a great glare and heat. Suddenly Sam saw Gollum's long hands draw upward to his mouth. His white fangs gleamed and then snapped as they bit. Frodo gave a cry, and there he was, fallen upon his knees at the chasm's edge. But Gollum, dancing like a mad thing, held aloft the ring, a finger still thrust within its circle. It shone now as if verily it was wrought of living fire. "'Precious! Precious! Precious!' Gollum cried. "'Oh, precious! My precious!' And with that, even as his eyes were lifted up to gloat on his prize, he stepped too far, toppled, wavered for a moment on the brink, and then with a shriek he fell. Out of the depths came his last wail, Precious! And he was gone. There was a roar and a great confusion of noise. Fires leapt up and licked the roof. The throbbing grew to a great tumult, and the mountain shook. Sam ran to Frodo and picked him up and carried him out to the door, and there upon the dark threshold of the Samoth Naur, high above the plains of Mordor, such wonder and terror came on him that he stood still, stood still, forgetting all else, and gazed as one turned to stone. A brief vision he had of swirling cloud, and in the midst of it towers and battlements, tall as hills, founded upon a mighty mountain throne above immeasurable pits, great courts and dungeons, eyeless prisons, sheer as cliffs, and gaping gates of steel and adamant. 
and then all passed. Towers fell, and mountains slid. Walls crumbled and melted, crashing down. Vast spires of smoke and spouting steams went billowing up, up, until they toppled like an overwhelming wave, and its wild crest curled and came foaming down upon the land. And then, at last, over the miles between, there came a rumble, rising to a deafening crash and roar. The earth shook, the plain heaved and cracked, and a rotoran reeled. Fire belched from its riven summit. The skies burst into thunder seared with lightning. Down like lashing whips fell a torrent of black rain, and into the heart of the storm, with a cry that pierced all other sounds, tearing the clouds asunder, the Nazgul came, shooting like flaming bolts, as caught in the fiery ruin of hill and sky they crackled, withered, and went out. Jackie asking, can we talk about Gollum having white fangs? How? I always imagined it being pretty slimy and unkempt. How are his teeth white? I've often wondered that too, Jackie. I think by contrast, I think by contrast in the the darkness here, it is possible that his, his fangs appear white, though... Yeah, I'm not sure, and as Seastar is confirming here, his teeth were previously described as yellow. Yeah, I think... That would be my reading of that, uh, rather than uh, rather than attribute a little poetical license to the professor. I would assume that, in fact, we are simply comparing his teeth against the, the smoky ruin that is occurring around them. Boy, we've got a lot to discuss in this passage, don't we? The final, well, triumph of Gollum. The ring is now destroyed. The ring has been claimed again by Gollum. He has... And by the way, I'm going to throw this out there just in case you haven't noticed it ever when you're watching the Peter Jackson movie adaptation of this. When uh, when Gollum takes the ring from Frodo and he holds it up, he is holding it aloft. Watch his other hand as he casually discards what is left of Frodo's finger. Just casually throws it down in one of the more disquieting and and gross moments in that movie. It, once you watch it, at least once you see it, you can't unsee it, as it were. In this moment, Gollum fulfills his purpose. You'll remember all the way back in the second chapter of the Fellowship of the Ring, Gandalf telling Frodo, pity it was that stayed his hand, and also we're not going to kill him either. We've had our opportunity, but we're not going to kill Gollum because I sense that something, that there is still a role to be played by him for good or ill, right? For good or ill, which gives us our title for this week's session here on There and Back Again. Gollum fulfilling his purpose for good and ill. It isn't just the hope of redemption that ensures that Gollum is kept alive, though that is one of the mechanisms by which <laughs> I hesitate to attribute this to any particular uh, any particular entity or any particular metaphysical force, but that is one of the mechanisms by which Gollum's ultimate fate is manifested, if you like, right? Gollum is here because many, many good people have made many, many good choices, going all the way back to Bilbo not killing him beneath the Misty Mountains in the pages of The Hobbit. Pity it was that stayed his hand. And then Gandalf didn't kill him. And then, I guess, uh, who's next on the list after that? Uh, Frodo and Sam didn't kill him. Aragorn didn't go after him and kill him, even when he knew he was following him. Frodo and Sam kind of resisted the urge to kill him. Faramir didn't kill him. Sam, again, didn't kill him, most recently. And now, here we are. And it is interesting to think that when we look at the chain of successes that lead us all the way to the crack of doom itself, we can't overlook the failure. If any one of these people had failed in their 
duty to Gollum, had, veil, had failed in their kindness to Gollum over the years, and Gollum had been slain, then Frodo would be the new Dark Lord. That's it. If Sam, in particular, right there on the flank of Mount Doom, had had failed in his his empathetic potential, his his pitiable uh, potential in that moment, if Sam had failed, then Gollum wouldn't be here. Frodo would be the new Dark Lord. So Frodo has resisted again and again and again. He has passed all of the tests to take him this far, but then he fails. Sam has passed the tests again and again and again. That gets them here too. Gollum fails his final test. He cannot turn away from the ring. He is too corrupted. In the last, the ring is destroyed at least as much by Gollum's failure as it is by Frodo's failure as it is by Sam's success. It is a combination of of hope and despair. It is a combination of of possibility and impossibility, and it is a combination of failure and success that leads us to this inevitable conclusion. All of which is to say that it's important to recognize in Tolkien's metaphysical schema, I suppose, in his his theological, uh, cosmological schema here, that success is not the only necessary component to goodness and greatness. Now, we've talked about this in the abstract, of course, because we've talked about eucatastrophe throughout The Lord of the Rings and throughout the pages of The Hobbit too, but we haven't seen it implemented in quite such a forceful manner. Frodo fails. If Frodo had succeeded, well, could he have thrown the ring in? Possibly. Possibly. But that success seems to be impossible, right? I think that success, the, the possibility of that success is precluded by the absence of light from the file of Galadriel when Sam tries to, to use it to uh, to lighten his path into Samoth Naur there, right? When even Galadriel's light is, is stilled here, that power is quelled here, there is no hope for the heart of a hobbit in that moment. Frodo is always going to fail, but it is the failure of Gollum too. It is the corruption of evil Again, tying us back thematically to our ongoing discussion about the ultimate fate of evil, the ultimate self-destructive nature and, and impulse and inclination of evil. All of these things wrap themselves up beautifully in this moment as Gollum claims it and in his dark joy and in his dark pride. Because let's pay very close attention here, right? What is it that leads to the destruction of the ring? Well... Frodo claims it for his own, and Gollum can't let it go, so he attacks Frodo, somehow discerning where Frodo is. Can Gollum see Frodo here? I don't think that he can. This is a... I'm raising that rhetorically because it is an outstanding question about this sequence of events. I have never felt that Gollum can see Frodo. I think that he knows the ring well enough to understand what has happened, and, and can presumably feel the presence of the ring in that moment. It's certainly that the, the ring uncloaked, right? If the ring is now visible enough and powerful enough to get Sauron's attention in Barad-dûr many miles away, then it is certainly powerful enough to get Gollum's attention too. I think this is Gollum fighting tooth and claw, right? This is Gollum desperate in his desire for the ring. But then, crucially, he claims the ring. He gets it. He does exactly what he set out to do. What is it that leads to the destruction of the ring? And with that, quote, and with that, even as his eyes were lifted up to gloat on his prize, he stepped too far, toppled, wavered for a moment on the brink, and then with a shriek, he fell. Even as his eyes were lifted up to gloat on his prize, he is holding the ring aloft and staring at it, and that is when he steps too far. If he had claimed the ring and scrabbled away from the edge and pressed himself back against the cliff wall, or better yet, turned tail and fled out of Samoth Naur, then the ring would never have been destroyed, and presumably Gollum, having claimed the precious for his own once again, but now much more mindful of the power of the precious and 
if we are right in our assertions that the ring has in fact grown significantly in power, not just with its, its proximity to Mordor, but also with the, the, the waxing of Sauron's power himself, right? If the ring is just more powerful now than it was the last time Gollum held it, the last time Gollum wore it, Gollum too could set himself up. Maybe not even in the gosh, faintly cute, faintly, you know, parochial way that he sets himself up before, right? Gollum the Great, the Gollum, fresh fish from the three, from the sea three times a day, right? This is his vision. This is his, uh, his ring fantasy, his fantasy of power. I doubt that is what would happen to Gollum, having claimed the ring here at this point. But it is his dark love of the ring. It is his obsession with the ring specifically that tilts him backward into the fire, corporeal observing Gollum counted his money while sitting at the table. Yeah. That's the mistake. That's the mistake right there. Shane observing Frodo is not a classic Greek tragic hero because it isn't hubris that brings the catastrophe to his failure. He is just overpowered. Um, yeah, no, I would completely agree, Shane. I do not see Gollum as I see Gollum as a tragic figure in the modern colloquial sense, but not in the Aristotelian sense. Gollum is not brought low by his tragic flaw, usually hubris, of course, but sometimes other flaws. It isn't it isn't Hamarsha here that leads to Gollum's downfall because Gollum is corrupted, right? Gollum is a murderous, lying, petty little sneak thief back when we meet him, or at least we get his account from, from Gandalf at the beginning of The Lord of the Rings, when he takes the ring from Deagle and basically manipulates his way into power in his little community before being outcast by his grandmother. That is this this moment of, of pride and desperation. This is not a part of Gollum's character originally. This is a part of Gollum's character as he has been corrupted by the overwhelming brutal consequence of of bearing the one ring yeah this is um yeah <laughs> jackie's asking this is why the nfl penalizes celebration dances exactly right right if he if he hadn't been standing on the touchline right there just doing his little his little golem dance then he wouldn't have fallen in and instead we would have had a whole new dark lord yeah pretty pretty bad uh, marshall observing interesting that both golem and frodo are not so much tragic heroes as victims specifically victims of the ring marshall i think you're absolutely right i think you're entirely right they do not fit in exactly the same way as the Lord of the Rings does not fit that Cambellian, you know, monomythic hero with a thousand faces, hero's journey kind of story structure. Partly, not entirely, partly because Frodo fails at the end and for, you know, myriad other reasons too. It doesn't fit that monomythic structure and it doesn't fit classic tragic hero structure either. Frodo and Gollum, I think you're right, are victims. Sam even is a victim. He's just not... He's just not compromised by the ring in the way that the other characters are. Anyway, we're spending far too long on this. For all that it is the most important moment in the entire book, yes, this is what happens. This is our moment. And let me dip into the timeline here for just a second. It is around noon on March the 25th in the year 3019 of the Third Age. That is uh, 1419 by Shire Reckoning. It is now 11 months after Gandalf's return to the Shire and the revelation to Frodo that uh, that Uncle Bilbo's magic ring is in fact the one ring. At this moment, at this very moment, of course, Pippin and the Host of the West is uh, are, are facing the, the might of Mordor in the shadow of the Black Gate that is uh, about to take a, a radical turn, in fact, at, at this point. And Barad-dûr falls. That is what Sam is witnessing here. As he, he picks Frodo up and carries him out of the door, there at the dark threshold of the Samoth Nower, high above the mountains of Mordor, such wonder and terror came on him that he stood still, forgetting all else, and gazed as one turned to stone. Interesting, calling back to our discussion last time about Sam turning to stone, Sam finding a new resilience as he as he loses a kind of a kind of self-awareness, I suppose, right? Sam becomes a little less Sam-like. He becomes a little less 
of a person as he is as he is approaching uh, the crack of doom here. Um, yeah, it's it's an interesting little little possibility space there to speculate about about Sam's exact nature at this point and and where his strength and resilience come from. I suppose that's to to kind of lock that down just uh, just a little one. Um, random comment saying, "What do we make of this date being the traditional one for Good Friday? You catastrophe upon you catastrophe." Um, interestingly enough. I would probably say not. I would probably say that that is just a coincidence rather than a purposeful catastrophe. And the reason that I would say that is that Tolkien A had no interest in overlaying a Christian, overlaying a specifically Catholic uh, doctrine on his secondary creation. You know, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago as we were talking about the creation of the orcs as being potentially heretical in the letter that he wrote to uh, to the poet W.H. Auden, right? He, he's not interested in overlaying real-world theology or real-world doctrine in particular over his his secondary creation, over his fictional world here. So that makes me think probably not deliberate. I'm sure he wouldn't have minded the coincidence, but probably not deliberate. And also, if you go and read the... Um it's uh, Sauron Defeated. It is volume nine of the uh, the History of Middle-earth series put together by uh, by Christopher Tolkien. If you go and read that, you will find the development of the chronology of this part of the book is incredibly complicated. It is incredibly complicated. And I'm sure that there's... Okay, let me put it this way. It is probably a fortuitous coincidence. It may be an example of a real-world piece of catastrophe or a, a real-world piece of, of um, interventionary grace, I suppose you could say. I do not think that Tolkien started with the climax at Mount Doom being on Good Friday and worked backward from there. That would... Well, that would amaze me, to be perfectly honest. I'm, I'm pretty, pretty, uh, pretty confident that's not, in fact, the case. Yeah. Okay. Um, let me see here. Um... As I'm coming back through, uh, no, I have lost the uh, <laughs> very good cons observing touchline. Alistair's played rugby. I did play rugby back in school. I'm still not terribly familiar with the terminology of uh, of your American football, right? I, I'm, yeah, no, I'm a I'm a rugby guy more than I was ever a uh, more than I was ever an American football guy. But yes, um, yeah. And, and random comments also confirming. Don't they start the quest from Rivendell on Christmas Day too? They absolutely do. Yes, it is December the twenty fifth. Uh, of course, that's not. Mm, Okay, we want to be careful here. It is December the 25th, right? That is not and doesn't seem to be a product of the modern narrator. We can talk, in fact, we're going to have time as we talk about the Tale of Years, as, uh, as, we, uh, as we move through the appendices for the Lord of the Rings. Maybe that's a better opportunity to talk about uh, how the time scheme of Middle-earth compares to our current time scheme and these kinds of coincidences. Because, of course, Christmas Day is not a day with any actual significance if you were talking about a period of time in ancient prehistory. If you're talking about you know, Christmas Day in the year 1 BC, not terribly important, actually, just any other day. It's the birth of Christ that makes it significant. So maybe, yeah, we, we can definitely talk about uh, we can definitely talk about that as we as we come back. Obviously, not their Christmas though. No, it's it's very very uh, very complicated and uh, yeah. Well, as I say, when we talk about the uh, the tale of years, we'll have the opportunity to talk about the the calendar a little bit. So Baradur has fallen. Hey, you guys, the ring has been destroyed. Let's push on just a little more. Um, did I talk about everything that I wanted to talk about? Oh, uh, commonly asked question here, um, and, and I think this is a more this is a, a more common point of confusion in the wake of the Peter Jackson movies than it was prior to that. Uh, Frodo loses his ring finger. He loses the third finger on his right hand. It is his ring finger that he loses. It is not 
inexplicably and inconsistently the top half of his index finger as it is in the Peter Jackson movies. He puts the ring on his ring finger because of course he does, right? Because of course he does. I have seen some interesting, uh, some interesting speculation about that, that some, okay, <laughs> hold your hands up in front of you and figure out which finger is your third finger, right? For me, third finger definitely means ring finger. Like I cannot be open to any interpretation of that phrase that does not mean your ring finger, but there are those who claim that it was in fact the middle finger, that, that you would count the thumb. And apparently there is a difference. I play guitar, so I am, that is, that is one of the fields in which I am accustomed to thinking of my third finger as being my ring finger. But apparently if you play piano, you count your thumbs as first finger, index fingers as second finger, and middle fingers as third finger. I don't know what to do with that. I, I'm, I'm certain. I will go to my grave believing that Frodo lost the ring finger on his right hand. That is, that is how I would catch it. Barry of God confirming thumb is not a finger. I've always said so. But then Sam is going to refer to the song of of nine fingered Frodo, right? So. I don't know. Does Frodo have extra fingers? Do we know for sure that hobbits don't have, you know, five fingers plus a thumb on each hand? We don't know for sure. Uh, Sauron Weasley confirming hobbits were definitely more fretted instrument folk. I would say so, right? I, I can only imagine so. Though Corporeal asks, did Tolkien play guitar or piano? I don't know. I'm not sure that I've heard any reference to him playing musical instruments. He would strike me as more of a piano man, I have to say, not in the Billy Joel sense, you understand, but okay, we've gone we've gone a long way off the track here. Let's finish up chapter three of book six of The Lord of the Rings with the end of all things. Prepare yourselves, prepare yourselves to weep. Well, this is the end, Sam Gamgee, said a voice by his side, and there was Frodo, pale and worn and yet himself again. And in his eyes there was a peace now, neither strain of will nor madness nor any fear. His burden was taken away. There was the dear master of the sweet days in the shire. Master! cried Sam and fell upon his knees. And in that ruin of the world for the moment he felt only joy, great joy. The burden was gone. His master had been saved. He was himself again. He was free. And then Sam caught sight of the maimed and bleeding hand. Your poor hand, he said, then I have nothing to bind it with nor comfort it. I would have spared him a whole hand of mine, rather. But he's gone now beyond recall, gone forever. Yes, said Frodo. But do you remember Gandalf's words? Even Gollum may have something yet to do. But for him, Sam, I could not have destroyed the ring. The quest would have been in vain, even at the bitter end. So let us forgive him, for the quest is achieved and all now is over. I am glad you are here with me, here at the end of all things, Sam. Sam's focus here is beautiful, is admirable, is virtuous, is narratively too perfect. Sam is not thinking about the ruin of Barador, that ruin that he just witnessed firsthand, right? He saw it with his own eyes across the, the great gulf of space between Mount Doom and Barador itself. He saw the Tower of Sauron fall. He understands what this is. He saw the Nazgul above him wink out of existence. They are done. The evil has gone. The shadow has passed. And that is not what he's thinking about. Master, cried Sam, and he fell upon his knees. In all that ruin of the world, for the moment he felt only joy, great joy. The burden was gone. His master had been saved. He was himself again. He was free, right? His master was saved, semicolon. He was himself again. He was free. What is bringing Sam great joy in this moment? It's not the destruction of the ring, exactly. It's rather that his master, that, that Frodo, is free from the influence of the ring. That Frodo has been returned to him in this moment. 
there was Frodo, pale and worn, and yet not himself, and yet himself again. And in his eyes there was peace now, neither strain of will nor madness nor any fear. His burden was taken away. There was the dear master of the sweet days in the Shire. Everything that Sam has done, everything that Sam has undertaken, all the challenges that Sam has faced, it's never been about the ring. It's never been about the fate of Middle-earth. He can understand that it is important, and he can understand that it is a promise that his master made. That is what drives him onward. But it has been for Frodo. It is the love of a servant for a master, the love of one person for another person, not the romantic or erotic love, but the true platonic love. The love of Sam for Frodo has carried him this far. It has carried him to the crack of doom. It has carried him to the end of all things, and now he can feel only joy because at the end of their journey, Sam has actually won. Sam, Sam alone, as far as we know, as far as we can be expected to understand at this point in the story, Sam alone in all the world has actually got what he wanted and what he deserved. He has Frodo back again. That is the reason for his joy. Frodo, of course, taking care of a little bit of exposition here, holding out just just a little bit of framing for the reader, I think, and also perhaps for himself, too. Do you remember Gandalf's words? Even Gollum may have something yet to do. Of course, we, from our privileged position of knowing the story of this book, have been uh, foreshadowing this basically since the Fellowship of the Ring. In fact, yeah, keep an eye on that Gollum. He's going to have a role to play before all is done. He's going to have a thing to do. Even Gollum may have something yet to do. The first time reading this book and coming to that realization and thinking, holy crap. This was set up 11 months ago, back in the Shire. This was set up forever ago, a lifetime ago, back in the Shire. Gandalf knew, Gandalf foresaw. Remember the two reasons that Gandalf has for keeping Gollum alive. There is the hope of redemption. The, the slim hope is not no hope, right? There is the possibility that Gollum can be redeemed, that all, good, that all evil things can be redeemed. But also there is that sense that he has, that Gollum has a role to play. And here we are, confirmed in that, that belief. But for him, Sam, I could not have destroyed the ring. The quest would have been in vain, even at the bitter end. Okay, let's just observe that. As I said, it is vitally important that we recognize what happened at the crack of doom. Frodo failed. He claimed the ring. That's it. Quest is over. It is only for the intervention of Gollum that the ring was destroyed. There is no way that Sam could have taken the ring from Frodo, that he could have killed his master. I can't imagine a circumstance in which that would have occurred. I can't imagine Sam being called upon to do that. I mean, maybe at a push, if Sam had thought of it and possessed the power of will to do it in that moment, Sam in his stonier form, right? Sam in his less emotional form, he could have, you know, run at Frodo, even though Frodo was invisible, you know, and we're not sure of the geography of the edge of the crack of doom. Maybe, maybe I will concede the possibility that Sam in a moment could have run at Frodo, grabbed him, held him, and carried them both into the fire. I'm not so sure. Like, I'm really not so sure about that, but it is possible. But otherwise, if not for Gollum, the ring would have taken Frodo and we would have had a new Dark Lord. But look at this turn. The quest would have been in vain, even at the bitter end. So let us forgive him, for the quest is achieved and now all is over. I'm glad you were here with me, here at the end of all things, Sam. Frodo extending pity, Frodo extending empathy, Frodo extending kindness and extending forgiveness is enormously touching, is 
<laughs> incredibly emotionally powerful. Of course, we've talked a lot about pity and we've talked a lot about sympathy. And we've talked a lot about valor and virtue and heroism and, you know, uh, the, the recognition of one's fundamental identity and more importantly, the fundamental identity of others. We've talked about the big picture virtues of the Lord of the Rings since the beginning of Fellowship, right? We even talked about most of those virtues back in the pages of The Hobbit too. But forgiveness. Forgiveness is a rare and special and pure and divine virtue. And it is shocking enough that Frodo can think of it now in this moment. Bleeding as he is, missing a finger, here at the ruin of all else, liberated from his burden, yes, but now facing his imminent death and the destruction for all they know of the world, that Frodo can think of forgiveness in this moment is a huge testament to who he is. That he can extend that forgiveness is maybe, arguably, Frodo's greatest moment in the entire book. This might be the most heroic moment that we get from Frodo. I think it is, I think it is enormously touching. Yeah, yeah. Um, in all fairness, says Becca, he was a very small hobbit, and this was a very big job. Yeah, I'm thinking of uh, Gandalf talking to Bilbo at the end of uh, at the end of the Hobbit. You know, uh, yes. I want to scroll back and look at. Um, yeah, Jackie's saying, I wonder if that's part of Frodo's pain and torment after the fact. He didn't actually succeed in destroying the ring, and he knows things would have turned out terribly if it weren't for luck slash fate. Yeah, I think that's true. I also believe that... Well, okay, we're going to have the opportunity to talk about this as we move forward into the next chapter and certainly through the rest of the Return of the King, but why is Frodo so peaceful now? Frodo is going to be haunted. He is going to be haunted by the burden of the ring, and he is going to be haunted by the wound from the Morgul blade, and he is going to be haunted by all that he has seen and done in the course of this quest. And ultimately, that is a wound that can only be healed in the West. It is only a wound that can be healed by taking ship from the Grey Havens. Um, minor spoilers for the end of The Return of the King, I guess. Um, but Frodo here in this moment is peaceful, not just because of the sudden lifting of this burden, I think, but also because he believes he is about to die. Also because he is he believes that he is about to reach his final peace, that, that this is just a moment of pain before all is done, the end of all things, right? Frodo clearly believes that, that this is his, his final fate. Marshall saying, I think Frodo's forgiveness is what shows his transformation. He has been returned to himself, but also transformed by the crucible of his experiences. It's why he seems like a messianic figure through the rest of the book. He has transcended his own failures. Yes. Um, mm, mm. There is some loaded connotation to the idea of Frodo as a messianic figure. I think that, okay, we are almost an hour into tonight's session, so there's no way that we can get into this. But, um, let's, let's, again, put a pin in this. This is one of these things that we will, we will circle back around to and talk about at some point in the future. Because, yes, there are clear messianic parallels for Frodo through the course of The Lord of the Rings and... There are moments where that parallel is so clear as to be utterly unavoidable. The forgiving of Gollum, absolutely one of them. There are other moments when it is nigh impossible to draw that connection. And I think, yeah, we, we may need to uh, to spend a little more time thinking about it. But yes, yeah, okay. As Jackie's saying, yes, pin that. Very qualifying, saintly more than messianic, perhaps? Yes, but I mean, also messianic. Like, like, also, there is a certain amount of overlap. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that, I promise, in the future. But for now, that is the end of chapter three of The Lord of the Rings. Let's move into chapter four, The Fields of Cormallon. The name uh, Cormallon here is um, 
And cinderin means uh, golden circle, uh, core meaning ring, and malin, of course, meaning uh, gold. An interesting kind of pronunciation note here. In Gondorian cinderin, this is the research that I was doing today, in Gondorian cinderin, it is likely that it is called Kormalthan, uh, because of the change in uh, because of the change in gold, Malin is is golden in, in or is gold in Sindarin in true Elvish Sindarin in Gondorian Sindarin it is Malton or Malthen so it's probably Cormalthen uh, or Cormalton in Gondorian Sindarin but we don't care about Gondorian Sindarin because we're getting it in the in the, the real true Elven Sindarin the fields of Cormalin. Let's cut back to the action, shall we? You guys, it's been a little bit since we were looking at the host of the West. There before the Black Gate as as uh, terror and torment fall upon them. All about the hills, the hosts of Mordor raged. The captains of the West were foundering in a gathering sea. The sun gleamed red, and under the wings of the Nazgul, the shadows of death fell dark upon the earth. Aragorn stood beneath his banner, silent and stern, as one lost in thought of things long past or far away. But his eyes gleamed like stars that shine the brighter as, as the night deepens. Upon the hilltop stood Gandalf, and he was white and cold, and no shadow fell on him. The onslaught of Mordor broke like a wave on the beleaguered hills, voices roaring like a tide amid the wreck and crash of arms. As if to his eyes some sudden vision had been given, Gandalf stirred. And he turned, looking back north where the skies were pale and clear. Then he lifted up his hands and cried in a loud voice ringing above the din, The eagles are coming! And many voices answered, crying, The eagles are coming! The eagles are coming! The hosts of Mordor looked up and wondered what this sign might mean. There came Gwaihir, uh, the wind lord, and Landraval, his brother, greatest of all the eagles of the north, mightiest of the descendants of old Thron- uh, Thor- excuse me, Thorondor. I don't know why I struggle with that particular name, but it always trips me up. Uh, so, uh, there came Gwaihir, the Windlord, and Landerval, his brother, greatest of all the eagles of the north, mightiest of the descendants of old Thorondor, who built his eyries in the inaccessible peaks of the encircling mountains when Middle-earth was young. Behind them in long, swift lines came all their vassals from the northern mountains, speeding on a gathering wind. Straight down upon the Nazgul they bore, sto- uh, stooping suddenly out of the high airs, and the rush of their wide wings as they passed over was like a gale. But the Nazgul turned and fled, and vanished into Mordor's shadows, hearing a sudden terrible call out of the dark tower, and even at that moment all the hosts of Mordor trembled, doubt clutched their hearts, their laughter failed, and their hands shook and their limbs were loosed. The power that drove them on and filled them with hate and fury was wavering. Its will was removed from them, and now looking in the eyes of their enemies they saw a deadly light, and were afraid. So it's important to recognize all of these things happening at once it is not the destruction of the of the ring that summons the eagles this is oftentimes a a misunderstood uh, plot development here. The eagles are coming. Gwaihir the Windlord has summoned forth his vassals and his brother Landerval, and they are coming to join the fray. They are coming to the fight. And Gandalf looks up and says, Hey, eagles! And Pippin, you'll remember, even as he falls, Pippin hears that and thinks, Oh, that was from Bilbo's story, not from mine. Mine is over now. And Pippin as we saw at the end of book five, apparently dies. He falls into darkness, at least, right? That is happening at exactly the same moment. What he hears is the cry of Gandalf and then the cry of the man looking up. The eagles are coming, the eagles are coming. But this, to be clear, is not a moment of eucatastrophe. The coming of the eagles at the Battle of the Black Gate is not a eucatastrophe. The eagles were never going to turn the tide of battle here. They were never going to save the day. They were never going to beat back the host of Mordor. They were coming to... Help, yes, but it was never going to be a a definitive blow against Sauron here. Instead, at exactly the same moment, 
The ring is destroyed, and the Nazgul hear the cry from the Black Tower, and they turn and flee back south, and in the fleeing are themselves destroyed, but the power has already been shaken from the, the orcs and the, the men under Sauron's dominion, and they now have no will to fight. They are not being driven forward. They are not... This is another element, by the way, of that... Um, of that incomplete subcreative impulse that we've discussed before in the context of evil forces in Middle-earth in Tolkien's Legendarium that we've talked before about, about the purity of creation, right? Good people who are connected to the light of creation, that is to say God can create, they can subcreate. That is important and beautiful. That is one of the most important things that we can do. See also Professor Tolkien's poem Mythopoeia, right? Telling stories, creating works of art, singing songs, certainly all of these subcreative acts are good because we are refracting the creative light that comes from God. Sauron is cut off from that creative light. He cannot genuinely create. He can only take his own limited pool of energy and pour it into his creations. So when he is creating the ring, the Nazgul, the, you know, forces under his command, he is drawing from his own power. They do not have the same agency. They are not complete. They are not full. They have not been created in the way that men and elves and hobbits and, you know, other good folk, ants and, and beornings and so on and so forth, uh, have been created. This is a very different creative impulse. This is why the destruction of the ring and the destruction of Sauron shakes forth that power from the orcs. They are just not being driven forward anymore. They are incomplete without the power that was driving them. Yeah. Uh, Mel calling out, uh, but the troubles of hobbits and dwarves. Uh, Karen observing, Gwaihir the Windlord is right up there with the best names in Tolkien. It absolutely is. Uh, Gwaihir, Sindarin, as we might expect, meaning Windlord, right? Gwai, Wind, uh, here, meaning uh, meaning Lord. Uh, Gwaihir the Windlord and Landraval uh, in, in Sindarin, meaning Broad-Winged, uh, which is just lovely, right? So, so Landraval the Broad-Winged and Gwaihir the Windlord. These characters, uh, these I hesitate to say characters almost, but these names have been in Tolkien's mind for the longest time. This is another example of Tolkien uh, reusing earlier names. You remember us talking about Elrond when we were discussing The Hobbit and when we first arrived at Rivendell, that, that Tolkien already had a sense of a character named Elrond. The character that he created for The Hobbit was similar to the character of Elrond that he already had in the back of his head as a, as a part of his, his uh, burgeoning legendarium, I suppose. But it wasn't until much later that those two characters were integrated, that they were made the same character. Gwai here is you in the story of Baron and Luthien, right? That is, uh, Gwai here is, is one of the eagles that rescues uh, Baron and Luthien from, from Angband, in fact. Um, so this is a name that has been kicking around for a while. In the production of this text, or actually, no, in the production of the Silmarillion text, excuse me, Christopher Tolkien excised the reference to Gwaihir because he assumed it was a mistake, or rather he assumed that his father had reused the name and didn't intend those characters to be the same character. But it's entirely possible that those characters are, in fact, the same character. It's entirely possible that that they that, that Gwaihir did once uh, fly to Angband and and take part in that uh, in that whole endeavor too. Uh, Thorondor also uh, Thorondor pretty great actually. Uh, Thoron meaning eagle and Tor turned into Dor uh, because of the the grammatical combination here meaning king. So uh, Thorondor, king of the eagles, his name means. King Eagle, and uh, Meneldor, the other eagle that we are going to see, the third eagle that flies uh, to Rodruin with uh, with Gwaihir and Landraval. Uh, Meneldor, um, we're not sure about, I guess, um, 
king of the heavens, probably, right? Meneldor, uh, Menel meaning the heavens, and Dor there, also coming from tower, meaning, or tower or Tor, meaning uh, king there. So Meneldor, king of the heavens, Gwaihir the windlord, and Landreval the broad-winged. These are our, um, these are our eagles. Uh, interestingly, um, it is sometimes argued that Gwaihir is the eagle, that he is the lord of the eagles from The Hobbit, so that the repetition of the eagles are coming, the eagles are coming, oh, and it's that same eagle! Sometimes that argument is made. There's nothing to confirm that. It's, um... Professor Tolkien never made the connection uh, between Gwaihir, the Wind Lord, and the Lord of the Eagles. He never conflated those two roles specifically, so we don't know it for sure. And there is a beat in just a moment when Gandalf thanks Gwaihir for carrying him twice before, which means that he definitely wasn't, that, that Gandalf specifically was not carried by Gwaihir previously, for example, during the events of The Hobbit. Yes. Um, let me see. <laughs> um, where are we? Oh, uh, Angela's saying, now we want the whole detailed eagle history and family tree. Well, we'll have the option in the Silmarillion again to talk more about the eagles. Yes. Yes, as we come down, uh, Jackie's quoting the last part of the passage here. The power that drove them on and filled them with hate and fury was wavering. Its will was removed from them, and now looking in the eyes of their enemies, they saw a deadly light and were afraid. I want to talk a little about... Um, a little about uh, Gandalf and, and Aragorn here, in fact. So we come in picking up from, in a different perspective, of course, but picking up from Pippin's fall, right? The host of Mordor is coming. There's no way that the good guys can withstand this onslaught for long. Everything looks completely dire. Um, the sun gleamed red, and under the wings of the Nazgul, the shadows of death fell dark upon the earth. Aragorn stood beneath his banner, silent and stern, as one lost in thought of things long past or far away. What is Aragorn thinking of? What is it that he is doing right now? Stood beneath his banner, silent and stern, as one lost in thought of things long past or far away. But his eyes gleamed like stars that shine the brighter as the night deepens. So first off, he is standing there as one who thinks of things long past or far away, but his eyes gleamed like stars that shine the brighter as the night deepens. He is watching. He is still ruling. He is still the king. I want to, in fact... Um, let me see here. I want to cancel this slide. Can I do that? Yes, there we go. I'm going to cancel the slide and come back to you unexpectedly right here in the middle of the session to show you this, which uh, I don't think that Joseph is joining us tonight, unfortunately, but uh, the wonderful Joseph Shannon sent me this little bookmark, which is just great. It is, of course, the White Tree of Gondor topped with the crown and the stars and little filigrees around the edges, right? So he sent this to me and I was looking at it and marveling at it and just, just loving it. Thank you, Joseph. Thank you so, so much. And, and Trudy, I believe, uh, your wife also, thank you so, so much for this. This is genuinely wonderful and, and thrilling. And I'm using it right now to... Uh, to keep my place just to you know put those hands together and kind of unify all the things that are obsessing me at the moment i'm using it to keep my place in this very excellent book this is tyrant shakespeare on politics by stephen greenblatt i'm reading up on shakespeare in advance of the shakespeare class which starts tomorrow night if you haven't registered yet it is now too late but i hope that you will uh, i know that a few of you have definitely registered and I'm, i hope you're looking forward to the class as much as i am anyway all of that is to say that i was holding this bookmark and and just loving it very much and then i realized that it is aragorn's banner that it is the banner wrought for him by Arwen from Mithril and Gems. And, ah, I just love this thing. This is so great. Thank you. Thank you, Joseph, so much. Uh, if you guys want to send me trinkets and bookmarks, I love bookmarks. Send me your bookmarks. Uh, you can find the address over on uh, pointnorthmedia.com. Go to pointnorthmedia.com and click the About button and you'll find the mailing address there. Anyway, let's get back to the slide, shall we? I'm just confused now, uh, confused, distracted, thinking about Aragorn's banner there. 
So he's standing beneath his banner, silent and stern, as one lost in thought of things long past or far away, but his eyes gleamed like stars that shine the brighter as the night deepens. He has not given up. We might be tempted to read that line about thinking of things uh, long past or far away as a sign that he is absent now from the battle, that he has he has seen the future with Aragorn's gift for prophetic vision, right? He is thinking, ah, crap. Well, this is it. Really, really bad reign, actually, of the returned king. Uh, technically, of course, he has not yet returned, returned. We'll get to that uh, hopefully in next week's reading with uh, with uh, chapter five, The Steward and the King, one of my favorite chapters in, in The Return of the King. Um, so he is present. He is focused. His eyes are shining the brighter as the night falls. This is Aragorn in full-on kingly mode. And then upon the hilltop stood Gandalf, and he was white and cold, and no shadow fell on him. No shadow falls on Gandalf, metaphorically, right? The shadows of the Nazgul are, are overhead. The shadow literal and the shadow of despair falling across the the host of the west here but not upon gandalf and also literally not upon gandalf because he is now again gandalf the white uncloaked he is now glowing again it doesn't seem to be terribly fierce but i'm sure that he is luminous beings are we not this crude matter right particularly true of gandalf if i could just include all of the things about which i am passionate in one single podcast as if to his eyes some sudden vision had been given, Gandalf stirred, and he turned, looking back north where the skies were pale and clear. Then he lifted up his hands and cried in a loud voice, ringing above the din, The eagles are coming! Enter the eagles. Not a moment of you catastrophe. The eagles themselves are not going to save the day. The eagles themselves are going to save Frodo and Sam. But this is not going to turn the, the the this is not going to turn the tide at the Battle of the Black Gate. If the ring had not been destroyed, still all would have turned to ruin. Let's uh, advance on here. Um, as we get Gandalf proclaiming what has happened. Then all the captains of the West cried aloud, for their hearts were filled with a new hope in the midst of the darkness. Out of the beleaguered hills, excuse me, out from the beleaguered hills, knights of Gondor, riders of Rohan, Dunedain of the north, close serried companies drove against their wavering foes, piercing the press with the thrust of bitter spears. But Gandalf lifted up his arms and called once more in a clear voice, Stand, men of the West! Stand and wait! This is the hour of doom! And even as he spoke, the earth rocked beneath their feet. Then rising swiftly up, far above the towers of the Black Gate, high above the mountains, a vast soaring darkness sprang into the sky, flickering with fire. The earth groaned and quaked. The towers of the teeth swayed, tottered and fell down. The mighty rampart crumbled. The Black Gate was hurled in ruin and from far away, now dim, now growing, now mounting to the clouds, there came a drumming rumble, a roar, a long echoing roll, a ruinous noise. The realm of Sauron is ended, said Gandalf. The ring-bearer has fulfilled his quest. And as the captains gazed south to the land of Mordor, it seemed to them that black against the pall of cloud there rose a huge shape of shadow, impenetrable, lightning-crowned, filling all the sky. Enormous it reared above the world and stretched out toward them like a vast threatening hand, terrible but impotent. For even as it leaned over them, a great wind took it, and it was all blown away and passed and then a hush fell. The captains bowed their heads, and when they looked up again, behold, their enemies were flying and the power of Mordor was scattering like dust in the wind. And when death smites the swollen, brooding thing that inhabits their crawling hill and holds them all in sway, ants will wander witless and purposeless and then feebly die. So the creatures of Sauron orc or troll or beast spell enslaved ran hither and thither mindless and some slew themselves or cast themselves in pits or fled wailing back to hide in holes and dark lightless places from hope 
But the men of Run and of Harad, Easterling and Southron, saw the ruin of their war and their great majesty and glory and the great majesty and glory of the captains of the West. And those that were deepest and longest in evil servitude, hating the West, and yet were men proud and bold, and in their turn now gathered themselves for a last stand of desperate battle. But the most part fled eastward as they could, and some cast their weapons down and sued for mercy. Seastar observing, with a certain wry irony, I'm sure it must be nice to have an enemy that can be completely destroyed with a single act, even a near-impossible act. Yes, yes, that is absolutely true, but at the same time, it is a natural consequence to the entire mythic foundation of, of Tolkien's worldview, right? The only reason that this happens is that Sauron is separated from the creative light of, of Iluvatar, that he is forced to create only by drawing upon his own power, that everything that he has done is enmeshed in his own identity and presence and power. Thus, when he is destroyed, when the wind from the south once more whips up, when we can... Thank Manwe again, you know, for another another uh, another divine wind entering into the realm of of Middle Earth here. Um, when Sauron is destroyed by necessity, all the things that he has touched are destroyed too, or at least all the things that he has created, orc or troll or beast spell enslaved, they are shattered by the destruction of Sauron. But the men of Run and of Harad, Easterling and Southron, saw the ruin of their war and their, the great majesty and glory of the captains of the West, and those that were deepest and longest in evil servitude, hating the West and yet were men proud and bold, in their turn now gathered themselves for a last stand of desperate battle. In their turn? Who are we echoing? There. Not the captains of the West. The captains of the West are not fueled by despair here. They are, quite the contrary, fueled by hope here, even as the Battle of the Black Gate seems to turn against them. Even as Sauron's trap is sprung, the host of the West still stands in hope. No, we're echoing here Aomer on the fields of the Pelennor. We're echoing here Aomer's calling to him of his men as they see the black ships of the Corsairs of Umber coming up the Anduin. Aomer believes that all is lost, so he plans a shield, a, a spear ring, and they will hold out there and they will take as many of these bastards with them as they can. That is Aomer's response. That, too, is the response of these men, those who were deepest and longest in evil servitude. Men proud and bold in their turn now gather themselves for a last stand of desperate battle. But that's only the very worst of them. For the most part, they fled eastward as they could, and some cast down their weapons in the suit for mercy. There it is. Yep. Um, Jackie's saying, so we should totes bring up the orc origin issue again here. Well, yeah, okay, we can. But this is not a definitive, uh, a definitive response to the question of orc origin because we also see trolls and beasts spell enslaved, whatever that might mean, right? Are we talking about the Oliphants here? Are we talking, you know, what, what is it that we're talking about here? The, the Murmulaks? Um, orc or troll or beast spell enslaved? Are the trolls also corrupted forms of something? Well, we don't know, but they are certainly dominated by Sauron for long enough that they uh, that they can't do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, good. Okay. Marshall saying, interesting how the evil men still fight, even though they are not nearly as closely beholden to Sauron as the orcs and other direct servants. It's a dark reflection of Eomer's own willingness to fight to the bitter end. Yeah, absolutely. The, the uh, these men, the those who have been uh, the longest in evil servitude, these men have an identity that is, well, you know what? We're going to be able to talk about this next week because next week we are going to throw back to the two towers and we are going to talk about 
Um, we're not going to throw back to the two towers. That is that is an untrue statement. No, that is a true statement. Good Lord, I'm getting confused in what happens when and where. We are going to throw back to the two towers because we're going to go throw back to Ithilien and we're going to throw back to Hanath and and we're going to talk about Faramir in next week's reading because we're going to talk about the nature of the Rohirrim. We are going to talk about what the men and women of Rohan really are. So we're going to talk about what it was, perhaps, that drove Eomer into defiance in that moment, and perhaps drew these uh, these men of Run and of Harad and Easterling and Southron, right? What drove them to their final defiance stand, too? Let's, um, let me see. So I'm checking the time here. I have about 10 minutes left. Okay, that's great. We can... Uh, Actually, this will work out beautifully. You know what? Let, let's let's do one more slide tonight, and then we will uh, finish up there, and we'll finish up the rest of uh, the rest of this chapter and uh, the steward and the king in next week's session. Because of course, we're going to flash back. We're going to cut back to Frodo and Sam here as Gandalf sets out upon the eagles. We're going to cut back to Frodo and Sam, and a repetition of Frodo's line. A very unusual thing for Professor Tolkien to do in the frame of the Lord of the Rings, but one of my favorite things. I'm glad that you were here with me," said Frodo. Here at the end of all things, Sam. Yes, I'm with you, Master, said Sam, laying Frodo's wounded hand gently to his breast. And you're with me, and the journey's finished. But after coming all that way, I don't want to give up yet. It's not like me somehow, if you understand. Maybe not, Sam, said Frodo. But it's like things are in the world. Hopes fail. An end comes. We have only a little time to wait now. We are lost in ruin and downfall, and there is no escape. Well, Master, we could at least go further than this dangerous place here from this crack of doom, if that's its name. Now, couldn't we? Come, Mr. Frodo, let's go down the path at any rate. Very well, Sam. If you wish to go, I'll come, said Frodo. And they rose and went slowly down the winding road. And even as they passed toward the mountain's quaking feet, a great smoke and steam belched from the Samoth Nower, and the side of the cone was riven open, and a huge fiery vomit rolled in slow thunderous cascade down the eastern mountainside. Frodo and Sam could go no further. Their last strength of mind and body was swiftly ebbing. They had reached a low ashen hill piled at the mountain's foot, but from it there was no more escape. It was an island now, not long to endure amid the torment of Orodoran. All about it the earth gaped, and from deep rifts and pits smoke and fumes leapt up. Behind them the mountain was convulsed. Great rents opened in its side. Slow rivers of fire came down the long slopes toward them. Soon they would be engulfed. A rain of hot ash was falling. They stood now and Sam, still holding his master's hand, caressed it. He sighed. "'What a tale we've been in, Mr. Frodo, haven't we?' he said. "'I wish I could hear it told. Do you think they'll say, "'Now comes the story of nine-fingered Frodo and the Ring of Doom, "'and then everyone will hush, like we did, "'when in Rivendell they told us the tale of Baron One Hand and the Great Jewel. "'I wish I could hear it. "'I wonder how it will go on after our part.' But even while he spoke so, to keep fear away until the very last, his eyes still strayed north, north into the eye of the wind, to where the sky far off was clear, as the cold blast rising to a gale drove back the darkness and the ruin of the clouds. Tom observing, you can hear the exhaustion in Frodo's short sentences, and Jackie, too, noting Sam is determined to save Frodo, and, we should note, does. He does, once again, save Frodo. Frodo, right? After coming all this way, I don't want to give up yet. It's not like me somehow, if you understand. That is the impulse that takes them away from the mouth of the cavern. That takes them away from the mouth of Samoth Nower, which in a moment is going to be utterly destroyed, right? The whole side of the mountain is going to be caved in, and it is only because of Sam's insistence that Frodo and he are not still sitting there at the mouth of the cavern. It is Sam here. It is Sam's inability to give up. 
Yes, I'm glad that you're here with me, here at the end of all things, Sam. Yes, I am with you, Master, said Sam, laying Frodo's wounded head gently to his breast. And you're with me, and the journey's finished. But after coming all that way, I don't want to give up yet. It's not like me somehow, if you understand. It's not like me somehow, if you understand. Might be the truest thing that Samwise Gamgee has ever or will ever say, right? That is Sam in a nutshell. Giving up? No, it's not really my thing, actually. I'm not, not super into it. I'm more of a... Uh, never give up kind of guy. I'm more in a constantly, constantly, constantly find more hope and keep pushing on, even there right at the end. But even while he spoke so, to keep fear away until the very last, his eyes still strayed north, north into the eye of the wind. He's still looking for hope. He's still trying to find something that will allow him to keep going, even now when he physically cannot keep going, even stranded on this island of ash as the world falls apart around him. Sam doesn't give up. He's still seeking hope. But look at, look at uh, poor Frodo here. Frodo, well, has been changed, perhaps. We can talk a little about this next week as we, we get the chance to dip into Frodo's, uh, Frodo's respite. Uh, we'll be able to talk a little about whether or not Frodo has changed, but certainly he has a powerful assertion. It's not like me somehow, if you understand, asserts Sam. Maybe not Sam, said Frodo, but it's like things are in the world. Hopes fail an end comes. We have only a little time to wait now. We are lost in ruin and downfall, and there is no escape. Frodo asserting not just that their hope is done, not just that he failed in the quest, not just that for the intrusion, the, the wicked intrusion of Gollum, their plans would have meant nothing, would have come to nothing, would have would have led only to a new dark lord rising from the shattered cone of a Rodoran here, right? Uh, the Frodo, the strong hero of the age, whatever, whatever. He's not just acknowledging that this particular hope has failed. He's generalizing now in a way that I don't think we've ever heard Frodo generalize before, and I don't think a way that we've heard any hobbit generalize before. This is it seems to me somewhat antithetical to Hobbit nature. Hobbits do not, as a rule, give up, and even in the direst circumstances, give up only because of the direst circumstances, right? It takes the full power of the ring at the crack of doom, when Sauron is at the peak of his might, to take Frodo's spirit from him, to crush Frodo's resistance to the ring at that moment. It takes all of that, but now it's like things are in the world. Hopes fail, an end comes. Frodo isn't talking about his circumstance. He's generalizing out. No, actually, Sam, this is the way of the world. This is how things end. And that's a difficult proposition. That's, <laughs> particularly here in the year 2018, you guys, a difficult proposition. We're going to talk more about hope, and we're going to talk more about restoration, and we are going to certainly talk about building in next week's session in the context of uh, Faramir and Eowyn. A lot to uh, to celebrate there as we move forward. Um, so they go down the path. They see the, uh, the, the mountain fall apart around them, being torn asunder by the, the great volcanic eruption here. Uh, soon they would be engulfed. A rain of hot ash was falling. They stood now. So here they are, standing, not even sitting, standing on this little island of ash, trapped by the volcanic eruption of Orodorin. The end of the world has come. And Sam is holding his master's hand. And he says, what a tale we have been in, Mr. Frodo, haven't we? Calling back, of course, to his recognition that it's the same tale, that they're still in that same tale, that these stories, the great stories, never really end. They keep going on. I wonder how it will go on after our part, recognizing, well, offering a counterpoint, an implicit counterpoint to what Frodo is saying, right? Frodo says, hopes fail, an end comes. But Sam is saying, no, 
ends never come. Nothing's ever over. And if nothing's ever over, then we never know the future for sure. And if we never know the future for sure, then we should never be bereft of hope. Hope comes from that uncertainty. Despair is what happens when you know the future beyond the shadow of a doubt, right? As long as the story is going to continue, and the story is always going to continue, there is still hope. Even here, unified in the face of certain death, unified by this bond of love that they share, Frodo and Sam are still seeing the world in fundamentally different ways. Sam is still Sam. What a tale we've been in, Mr. Frodo, haven't we? I wish I could hear it told. Do you think they'll say, now comes the story of nine-fingered Frodo and the Ring of Doom, and then everyone will hush like we did when in Rivendell they told us the tale of Baron One Hand and the Great Jewel, the Great Jewel? Oh, the Silmarillion you're talking about there, Samwise Gamgee? You're talking about the Silmarillion? Equating Frodo, you'll note too, Nine-Fingered Frodo and the Ring of Doom, Nine-Fingered Frodo and the Ring of Doom, brackets, and Samwise Gamgee, who was also there, close brackets, right? Sam is not crediting himself with a part in this story. He has, he has been here and he has witnessed it, but he knows that the story is not about him. Sam is still too humble, still too hobbitish to understand that the story could ever really be about him. But putting Frodo on the same level as Baron, putting this adventure on the same level as that adventure, speaks powerfully to Sam's vision of, of the world there. Yeah. Um, let me see. Shane, fun theology terms. Okay, I'm going to be a little out of my uh, little out of my depth here. Fun theology terms, says Shane. Frodo was talking about a realized eschatology. The rest of the chapters in The Lord of the Rings have an inaugurated eschatology. The victory is achieved, but now needs to be implemented. Ha! Huh. Interesting. Interesting. And in a sense, though, isn't Frodo... Or, or isn't that distinction, I suppose I should say, isn't that distinction reflecting both that greater argument of of hope versus despair and knowledge of the future in that specific regard, but also the sense that, well, hey, spoilers, you guys, right now, this minute, while Frodo and Sam are standing on this isle of ash surrounded by, by molten lava and, and, and terrible upheaval of Earth, right now, we are in the fourth age. The third age, third age ends with the destruction of Sauron. It is done. We are now in the age of man, and our story is not done. Um... Yeah, uh, I'll, uh, I'll, I'm going to look up. <laughs> Sam is Luthien here. Jackie, Jackie, you are so right. Sam is Luthien here. That's fantastic. That's absolutely fantastic. Wow. Um, <laughs> I'm just definitely going to have to think about that. Um, good, good. Varig of Khan saying, when I was a kid, I always dreaded the mushy scene when the love interests kiss. We always said, yuck. Yeah, or inquired from your grandfather, wait, is this a kissing book? It's a phrase that I use more often than I should, honestly, more often than I should. Marshall observing too about next week. Man, I love Eowyn and Faramir. So excited to talk more about the relationship. It is one of my favorite passages. I'm, I'm so, so looking forward to that. That, though, you guys, is <laughs> Angela Lurie also quoting, is this a kissing book? Excellent. <laughs> good, good. Um, that, I think, is going to do it. Oh, let's take this comment here from, uh, from Z-Star. Excuse me. I saw the previous scenes as Sam persisting in the absence of hope, doing what he could to help and comfort Frodo. I saw this as him, as him acknowledging that even though they were about to die, because the, uh, the world would go on because the ring had been destroyed. He had reasons to believe in a good future, if not one he and Frodo would see. Frodo doesn't seem to realize the impact of the ring's destruction, despite having had a vision of it. I do completely agree, Seastar. This is an important element here. I am not at all sure that... <sighs> see... 
it's weird. Frodo clearly understands that the ring has been destroyed. And he understands that the quest has been achieved, that they have actually accomplished the goal that they set out to achieve right at the beginning of the book. He expresses exactly that when he says that they ought to forgive Gollum, because if not for his role, then the quest, excuse me, the quest would not have been achieved. And now it clearly has. So by extension, we can forgive Gollum. And yet he also believes that it's the end of all things. And I wonder to what degree, you know, to kind of continue our, our somewhat circular conversations about uh, the thematic uh, concepts very common and, and, and uh, highlighted in book five of The Lord of the Rings. To what degree is Frodo now fey? Well, he's not fey in the sense that he is seeking death. He's not fey as Theoden was fey or as Eomer was fey or as Eowyn was fey or as Aragorn was fey, right? Lots of people were fey during that part of the book. He's not fey in that sense, but he is, I genuinely believe, seeking death. He is expecting death. Standing at the mouth of Samathnara, probably not like a good place to stand, but he only moves because Sam wants to. And now, well, here we are darkest moment this is this is it we're we're done for but i'm feeling kind of fine about it actually it's it's kind of okay i don't know uh, certainly yeah i i think about uh i think about um uh, about that not desire for death even necessarily but that acceptance of death as being a part of Frodo's greater burden. I always have this moment in my mind when we get to the Grey Havens. I always have this moment in my mind when I think about what ultimately happens to Frodo and what he suffers is probably too heavy a word to use, but what he endures through the rest of his life in Middle-earth, you know? Um, I have this moment in my mind because I think it's not just... It's not just that he has been liberated from the ring, but he's also... He's got this this momentary cessation of burden, but also this longer-term cessation of suffering, right? He's done. That's it. Now he can die. His, his goal is accomplished, so he can die without regret, but he can die. And Sam, of course, not there. Sam, embodying the uh, Galaxy Quest line, never give up, never surrender. That is going to do it, though. Let me check my notes here as I can uh, confirm what we're going to cover next week. Next week, we'll finish up Chapter 4, and we'll cover Chapter 5, The Steward and the King. Next week's session, that is July the 12th, will be an afternoon session. So that will be 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central. Is that right? That's almost certainly not right. No, that is right. 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central. <laughs> It's been a couple of weeks since I had to schedule an afternoon class, and now I can't remember how time works, you guys. Yes, 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, next week. That is July the 12th for the rest of Chapter 4 into Chapter 5. And so we will begin the long, the long march back to the Shire. There's so much to look forward to, you guys, in the rest of The Return of the King. I'm so glad that you could all be here with me tonight. At the end of all things, this was an absolute pleasure. Obviously, this has been a passage that I've been looking forward to discussing since we started The Lord of the Rings. This is, uh, this is just wonderful. It has been a pleasure to discuss this in all of your fine company. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for watching. For those of you who have joined me live, I hope many of you will be able to make it next week. I will see some of you tomorrow for the Shakespeare class. I'm looking forward to that very, very much. I've been uh, reading my Venus and Adonis, and we'll be able to uh, talk about that tomorrow night. We'll also, for those of you who have missed out on the Shakespeare class, a downloadable version will be available after the fact. It's a four-week class, so you're not going to see that until the beginning of August, but by the time we get there, I will have made available uh, links, downloadable links, so you can... Uh, so you can uh, download that class and uh, read some Shakespeare with us. It's going to be really fun. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to it. Guys, thank you all so, so much for joining me. I hope that you all have a wonderful week. I will talk to you all again soon. Until then, fly, you fools! Fly, you fools!